Chapter Two of East by West, Volume One. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ruth Golding. East by West: A Journey in the Recess, Volume One. Chapter Two: New York City. It is a pity that the first consideration forced upon the attention of the foreign visitor on landing at New York is the state of the roads. As far as I know, no civilized town, certainly no capital city, has thoroughfares in such a condition as those which disgrace New York. It is urged in extenuation that the tramcars make good roads impossible, and that as everybody travels by cars, the state of the roads outside the rails does not much matter. But neither of these assertions will bear consideration. New York is not the only city in the world that has trams. We have them in London, Liverpool, Manchester, Birmingham, and most English towns. Yet the roads are kept in good condition. The tram lines in New York would of themselves make a British vestryman stare. In London, the lines are laid with the flange on one side, level with the road, and the groove as narrow as possible with the object of preventing wheels of cabs and carriages from locking. Here, in the centre of mechanical activity and ingenuity, are found the old open rails of the time of George Francis' train, pitfalls for the unwary hackney coaches, traps for the hapless omnibuses. Outside the rails the roadway is in a pitiable condition. To drive from the White Star Wharf to the Windsor Hotel is a transit more perilous than a voyage across the Atlantic. In respect of the condition of the roads, there is not much to choose between uptown and downtown. Fifth Avenue is admittedly the principal street in New York, yet I can see out of the window at which I write, immediately in front of the Windsor Hotel, within a stone's throw of the Vanderbilt Mansion in the middle of the thoroughfare along which the wealth and fashion of New York daily drive, a hole in the roadway two feet long, a foot broad, and from three to four inches in depth. Skibbereen does not shine in the matter of roadways, but if opposite the hotel in Main Street there were a hole of this kind, the population would turn out in a body and denounce the Saxon government. The whole question of street locomotion in New York is curious and interesting. The elevated railroad, familiar at least by name to all Englishmen, offers the fullest facilities for getting about a city of the peculiar construction of New York. It seems at first blush a monstrous proposition that a company of private speculators should seize upon the streets of a capital, run up iron posts, sling girders across, and run a railway along the level of the first-floor windows. But the streets of New York are so bad that there is a not unnatural feeling on the part of the inhabitants that they could not be made worse. Now the railway is made, and is in working order, it is gratefully accepted as one of the institutions of the city. The trains run frequently to all places where men most congregate. The carriages are comfortable and airy. The roadway, benefiting by the spring of the girders, is exceptionally easy, and the price of a journey, whether long or short, is fivepence. 
Whilst the trains run overhead, the cars run below at half price, and morn, noon, and night, in rain or sunshine, both are crowded. A New Yorker rarely walks. A proposal that, having a visit to pay to the Fifth Avenue Hotel, I should walk, nearly had serious consequences to the hall porter at the Windsor. Why, he said, gasping, I guess it's twenty blocks off. He could not have been more taken aback if I had proposed to accompany Sergeant Bates, who, having utterly regardless of danger, carried the American flag through England, is now about to walk through the United States with the object, as he explains, of consolidating North and South and stamping out the last embers of an ancient feud. Across the river in New Jersey, there are means of locomotion more startling to the insular mind than the elevated railroad. Travelling to South Orange, the train winds its way at full speed through the main streets of whatever towns or villages lie in its route. From time to time there are outbursts of indignation in England because of some accident at a level crossing. Here is a level crossing miles in length, with an occasional signalman to wave the alarm where the thoroughfares bisect the track. The company think they have done enough if they adapt the ordinary cow-catcher to the exigencies of the human population, and at regular intervals of space entreat infants in arms to look out for the locomotive. In addition to these precautions, the engine tolls a sepulchral bell, which, just after another man or woman has been killed, has a most impressive sound. This arrangement of the railway, whether travelling on the level of first-floor windows or along the main street of a populous town, is characteristic of the American's notion that the world was made for man, and not man for the world. To have railroads right there is the handiest thing, and is accordingly done. On the same principle, an American lounging on a chair in a smoke-room will put his legs on a table if it be within reach. The table was not made for legs, any more than the main street of Orange or Newark was made for railways, but there's the table and there are the main streets, so the legs go on one and the railroads run along the other. This spirit of utilising whatever lies nearest to hand is shown again in the matter of advertisements. The ugliness of New York is in places accentuated by the upheaval of lumps of sandstone rock standing on bleak bits of cleared land. If this were Paris, the opportunity would be seized to make a bright spot in the heart of the city. Beds of flowers would bloom on velvety turf, and the bare rock would be covered with climbing plants. The practical mind of the American is struck with the excellent position of these stones for advertising purposes, and they are accordingly covered with imperative injunctions to buy your dry goods for cash, or to lose no time in ordering the rising sun stove polish. On the outskirts of the city, advertisements are planted out like cabbages or celery, along the field skirting the lines of railway. Down by the city hall, 
some building is going on which necessitates the putting up of scaffolding, the poles of which stand in barrels full of earth. These barrels had not been fixed an hour before they were hired to display the advertisement of a pianoforte maker. For several seasons the hotel-keepers at Coney Island, who have their private advertising connections, have been driven wild by a small boat with a large sail that tacks up and down off the crowded beach. On the sail is printed in gigantic letters, Give Batty Soap a Show! There is no escaping this. People go down to Coney Island to be near the life and freshness of the Atlantic, and looking out seaward there is ever in view this small boat with its large mainsail, bearing the strange device, Give Batty Soap a Show. There is little doubt that had the Ark happened to be stranded on Jersey Heights instead of on Ararat, Noah, on stepping out in the morning, would have found the structure plastered over with injunctions to Use Gastrine for Dyspepsia, or to Give gargling oil a turn. The condition of the thoroughfares and the facilities afforded by the elevated railroads and the endless chain of tramways combine to banish cabs from the daily use of the New York citizen. But there are times when a cab must be taken, and then the driver has his revenge for long neglect. Eight and fourpence is practically the lowest fare taken by a New York hack driver. From the White Star Wharf to the Windsor Hotel, a distance certainly not exceeding three miles, I paid twelve and sixpence. Moreover, a gentleman who introduced himself to me as the boss demanded the fare before starting, a procedure resented as an imputation upon my solvency. But long before the hotel was reached, I perceived that it was simply a shrewd business transaction for the odds were heavily against arrival at our destination. If the horse lived so long, the rattle-trap conveyance would surely come to grief over the corduroy road. Twice the horse stopped in protest against this sort of thing on a Sunday morning. The second time the driver got down and humoured him by taking off one of his shoes, after which he did better, and covered the three miles in forty-eight minutes. I wanted to argue with the driver in favour of a reduction, on account of the economy effected in the matter of shoes. The case seemed very clear. I had hired a horse with four shoes. We had started with four shoes, and we arrived with three, a saving to the proprietor of twenty-five per cent, in which the fare had a right to participate. But it was no use talking. The boss had my three dollars paid in advance, and if we had reached the hotel with only one shoe, as would probably have happened had it been a few blocks farther off, or if we had never arrived at all, he would have regarded the financial incident as closed. This same peremptoriness in the matter of securing payment is strongly marked in the customs department. America is a free country, and when a man is egregiously overcharged for customs duty, he is at liberty to protest. Nothing can exceed the earnestness 
with which a New York customs house officer invites the angered traveller to pay under protest. A fellow voyager on the Britannic had on the outward voyage played poker, till on arriving in the Mersey he found himself, after many vicissitudes, the winner of eight pounds. After the manner in which equally pious men of old used to build a church or endow a shrine after a prolonged bout of wickedness, our young friend, finding in an old furniture shop in Durham a piece of carved wood, certified by the second-hand furniture man to have formerly been a part of the altar of the cathedral, bought it with intent to present it to his parish church. When others ruefully counted up the cost of facing the customs officials with their importations, the reformed poker player complacently eyed the case containing his altarpiece. "'That's real sixteenth-century work,' he said. "'It goes through as an antiquity, duty-free.' I met him in the customs shed two hours later. "'What's the matter?' I asked, noticing his flushed face and angry mien. Has the antiquity come out broken? Antiquity be darned, he answered with painful profanity. Twenty dollars duty, says the fellow to me when I showed him the invoice. Sixteenth-century work, says I, goes through as an antiquity. You bet it don't, says he. Antiquities don't begin till fourteenth century. Twenty dollars duty, but you can pay under protest so I had to pay for a mean matter of two centuries. If I'd only known the regulation, I guess that altar would have been made two centuries earlier. Still, he had had the satisfaction of paying under protest, a luxury which, unlike some others, is not of a fleeting character. The manager of the leading English insurance company in the United States tells me that a similar joy has lingered with him for six years. There is published here, for the use of insurance managers, a wonderful series of maps, showing at a glance the height, breadth, depth, and form of construction of every house and public building in the principal towns. The English directors, having heard of this, asked for the loan of one of the maps. Being returned in due course, the custom-house officers at New York pounced upon it, and in spite of clear evidence that it was in all respects of American manufacture, heavily taxed it. Payment of duty was made under protest, and upon communication with the Treasury, repayment was promised. But it has never come and there remains only the subtle satisfaction of having lodged the protest. Mention of this insurance map, a monument of patience and labour, recalls another evidence of the completeness with which Americans carry a project through. Foremost among the drawbacks of holiday time with the British householder is the anxiety as to what will become of his house whilst he is away. The New Yorker is relieved of this care and of some other domestic ones by a regularly constituted company. His fairy godmother, connecting his abode by telegraph wires with her own central domain, will, upon the ringing of a bell, send a messenger prepared, like the British Marine, to go anywhere and do anything. A second signal will, as if by magic, 
bring a carriage to the door. A third will bring a policeman. A fourth sounds a fire alarm. And I do not doubt that there are other signals that will call anything or anybody likely to be required in any well-regulated household. When the householder goes away to Newport, Long Branch, or other holiday resort, the godmother takes entire charge of the house, fastens windows and doors, connecting them with her own rooms, where, upon the slightest attempt to enter the closed house, a bell rings, and by the time that the pleased burglar has settled down to his work, the police arrive. But a house shut up for a month in summer-time would grow insufferably musty. The fairy godmother thinks of this, and once a week sends down, has all the windows thrown open, and thoroughly airs the house. It is gratifying to know that the godmother makes a handsome income out of this beneficial enterprise. When one thinks of the houses in London left tenantless for five or six months in the year, with the attendant expenses of housekeeping, and the constant fear of malpractices from without and within, one wonders whether there are no terms of a strictly commercial character upon which the fairy godmother could be induced to care for London as she does for New York. Owing to convenient contiguity to a rich stone quarry, it has come to pass that New York is one of the somberest-looking cities in the world. The dream of the rich New Yorker, realised in the case of Mr. Vanderbilt, is to live in a brownstone-fronted house. That is to say, to show a bold veneer of brownstone to the world that passes along the main street, putting off your neighbours at the back with ordinary brick. No words can adequately convey a notion of the depressing shade of a New York brownstone house. It is something of the colour of chocolate without the red tint which relieves it from absolute dullness. It gives the passer-by the idea that here is a house once strong and healthy, now sickening with a vague disease. It is impossible to conceive any colour on the palette that would set off or even harmonise with this sickly hue. To do the New Yorker justice, no ordinary canons of art deter him from experiments. The brownstone fronts are backed with brick painted a brilliant red, pointed in black. Add to this Venetian shutters of a bright green, and sun-blinds of crimson stripes, and you will get a result joyously achieved in many of the streets of New York. Sometimes, whilst the shutters remain a brilliant green, there are calico blinds of a deep blue, but I am not sure that this is an improvement. In Fifth Avenue, and streets akin to it, there is some general toning down of these colours, but they break out here and there, and scarcely anywhere is the eye relieved from the depression of the deadly dullness of the brown. In New York politics, efforts are sometimes made to bring about what are called the primary elections in July, because in that month, as it is said, the brownstone fronts are out of town. If this were literally true, it would be a great deliverance for New York. But the wind is tempered to the shorn lamb, 
and New York has an architectural glory, perhaps two, which cover a multitude of brownstone fronts. The lesser one is the white marble cathedral in Fifth Avenue, the finest modern building of the kind I ever saw. The other, a marvel of combined beauty and strength, is Brooklyn Bridge, which is worth a journey across the Atlantic to see. Looked at from a distance, whether near or far, it seems to span the broad river with gossamer web. Yet an army might march across it, or the population of a small town might live upon it without fear of the yawning gulf below. End of chapter 2